Jesus is equal with the Father in holiness and majesty as the one true God. And so Paul says he has been given the name which is above every name that someday everyone will confess. And what is that name? That he is Lord, Kurios, Yahweh. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogy is Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Book of Romans, we've moved into Chapter 10, in which the Apostle Paul describes Israel's rejection of Jesus as their promised Messiah. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy now as he affirms God's desire that none should perish, but all should come to repentance in a message entitled, Rescuing the Perishing. And so he says in verse 9, look at it, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, not Jesus as Lord. Remember, we saw that little word as is italicized. It's not in the original. It's just there to make it read a little smoother in Greek. But literally, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so Paul is saying this word is near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. But it's like a dormant seed. You must confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you will be saved. And we studied carefully the relationship last time between the heart and the mouth. I spent 30 minutes on it. I'll spend one minute on it this morning. For the heart, he says in verse 10, notice, a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. Please notice the interplay between verses 9 and 10 between the heart and the mouth. In verse 9, he speaks of confessing with the mouth and believing in the heart. In verse 10, he totally reverses it, and he speaks of believing with the heart and then confessing with the mouth. And in verse 11, he doesn't mention the mouth or the heart at all. He just speaks of believing. So again, sort it out in your thinking. Verse 10, for with the heart... A person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We study that these two statements of confessing with the mouth and believing with the heart are not separate thoughts, but equal thoughts. With a heart, he says, with a a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. The English Standard Version says, with a heart, one believes and is justified or declared righteous. That's a substitute word in the New Testament for salvation, if you remember from Romans, the third chapter. So with a heart, with a heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness, resulting in salvation. And with a mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. These two statements in the mind and heart of Paul are absolutely inseparable. It's the flip side of the same coin. That's why a mute person can be saved. I was in Ukraine recently and ministering to a large group of deaf people and one guy, all he could go is, oh, oh, oh. That's all he could do. He couldn't say, Jesus is Lord. Does that mean mute people cannot be saved? Listen, any church, when they describe the plan of salvation with four words, repent, believe, confess, be baptized, have typically, not always, but typically have distorted the plan of salvation. And so they would say, well, first you have to believe, 
And then this salvation is completed when you confess. And they give two independent meanings to believing with the heart and confessing with the mouth when God makes them one solid, brought-together meaning. No, when you truly believe with the heart, you will, if you're able physically, confess with the tongue. Because the tongue and the heart are connected together in Scripture. So the Apostle Paul is not saying that salvation is partially through believing and then completed by some public confession of faith. That's a fruit of salvation. It's not the means to salvation. Just like baptism is not a means to salvation, as the Church of Christ and Christian Church denomination teach, which is a different gospel, another gospel. It is a fruit of salvation, something you should do after you are saved. And so verse 11 for the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Now that's the context. And if we understand that, it just becomes so cool what God unfolds in the next few verses. Again, the title of the message is Rescuing the Perishing. And if you want God to use you to rescue the perishing then listen carefully to three principles that must be yours. You must own them. And again, if you haven't seen anyone come to Christ in the last few years, when I say that on occasion, it's not to make you feel guilty. I say that because the church in America is declining. 75% of the churches in America are declining. You've got some of these big super mega churches, most of which stand for nothing. So the largest mega church in Atlanta, the pastor will have a homosexual still in a homosexual lifestyle and his homosexual partner watching him when he baptizes them every week. And we'll do anything to get people to come into the church and to distort the gospel of God's message. God wants anybody and everybody to come to the church, but to become a member, baptized as an emblem of your faith, you need to be first converted, and that presupposes you are willing to recognize sin as sin and call it evil as God teaches. So if you haven't seen God use you, He wants to use you. And I want God to use you, and I want Him to use me, and I want us to use Him to use us corporately as a church because He is going to fulfill His great commission. The question becomes, what role will we play? So three simple principles. Principle number one, the invitation of the gospel is impartial. The invitation of the gospel is impartial. Look at now at verse 12. He says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Now we've seen that phrase, for there is no distinction in one other place in Romans. Do you remember where? All the way back in Romans chapter 3. It introduces Romans 6.23. In fact, it's the main thought in those two verses. Now, we have to divide our verses to help us to find our way around sometimes in the Bible, and that's extremely useful. But sometimes we divide the thought that's being introduced. And so by way of introduction into verse 23, he says, for there is no distinction. Let me read the two verses together. He says, even the righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ. He has just described that you cannot earn righteousness by good works, but you need the righteousness of God because that's the kind of righteousness, not human righteousness, that falls short. The kind of righteousness we need is the kind of righteousness that God gives through the cross as a gift. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when God looks down on the human race, Paul is bringing to a conclusion the argument of three chapters, there's no distinction. Whether you are the hardcore pagan idolater of chapter one, whether you are the moral, respectable, religious man of chapter two, whether you are the God-believing Jew in the second half of chapter 2 and then into chapter 3, but still lost, it doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, African, European, Asian or Indian, educated, uneducated, rich or poor, religious or non-religious, in God's eyes it doesn't make any difference. There is no distinction. All fall short. All miss the mark of the glory and righteousness of God. As Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have gone astray each to his own way. And so the impartiality of the gospel is brought out in this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there are people all across our planet today who are trying to come to grips with the truth in this verse and the guilt that is in their hearts. Some are fighting and suppressing and denying that guilt. But denying it doesn't change its reality. Others are searching and wondering, how can I find the forgiveness of God? And no one has shared with them the eternal good news of how to escape an eternal judgment in hell. They don't know the answer to how can I be right with God. In most religious organizations and denominations and isms of this world have tried to answer that. And their answers are similar. It's either what you do or what you don't do. And so I was recently in India and I saw Hindus wanting to take a bath in sacred water thinking that somehow that could make them right with God. I saw Sikhs who made their pilgrimage to the Golden Temple thinking somehow that could make them right with God. And so people bathe in sacred water. They make a sacred journey to some religious site. They perform an act of penance or self-sacrifice. And like the Pharisees, they think there's something they can do to earn righteousness. And so Jesus said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And by that little epigram, he did not mean that some were righteous and others were not. But some did not acknowledge their unrighteousness and therefore never came to a Savior. Now, it would be absolutely irresponsible for someone who attends a physician and comes up with a self-diagnosis and a diagnosis that is absolutely wrong for the doctor to say nothing. And it is just as irresponsible for you, for me, knowing the ultimate destiny of people. And we don't talk much about hell today. You know, hellfire damnation preachers, that's another generation. Let's not talk about that. That's offensive. So the church doesn't really believe people need to be rescued from anything. When we talk about being saved, saved from what? 
saved from the righteous wrath of God, and Jesus described it in a place of eternal torment originally created for the devil and his angels. So the first place we saw that phrase, for there is no difference, was in Romans 3.22, reminding us that no matter who we are or where we live or what we've done, we still miss the mark of the needed righteousness to come into a relationship with God. The second place we find that phrase, for there is no difference, is here in our text in verse 12. Look at it again. For there is no difference, no distinction between Jew and Greek, For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call on his name. It's a powerful statement. Don't miss it. There's no distinction. He is the same Lord and Lord of all for all who call on his name. So on the one hand, he used the phrase, for there is no distinction, to show that we are all equally in need. And now he uses the phrase to affirm that we are all equally welcomed. And so we saw that in verses 6 through 11. And then Paul says, notice in verse 12, for for the same Lord is Lord of all. And he reminded us of that truth back in Romans, the second chapter, that no one can claim some special connection, some special privilege with God. The Jewish people thought, well, surely, since we are God's covenant people and the people for whom God promised to bring the Messiah, that we have a special connection with the Lord. And God makes it very clear. He has one way of saving people. It doesn't matter if you're Baptist or Presbyterian or Catholic or Hindu or Muslim. He can only save you through faith in Christ. You see that little word for? Some of your translations translate it because. Because... He is the same Lord of all. All are welcome. Why? Because he's Lord over all, abounding in riches to all who call upon him. So when you call upon the Lord, he doesn't simply answer. He's a God who answers abounding in riches for all who call on him. All without exception, irrespective of race, whoever you are. And of course, that's one of the major messages of the book of Ephesians. Let me refresh your memory with Ephesians where Paul reminds us that Jew and Gentile are now equal and God has removed the dividing wall between the two of us. He says, therefore, remember that you formerly, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called Jews or circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You didn't have the same privileges Israel did. Now you had access to the same salvation, but you didn't have the same privileges. You're strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and because of their unbelief, without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In the temple, there was a literal, actual, physical dividing wall. And there was a sign on it. We actually found the sign. It's, a, it's in, on display in the Mu- British Museum in England. That if any Gentile were to go beyond this spot, it will ensure and guarantee his death. And so there was the court of the Gentiles. And God had a reason for distinguishing the two. But God has removed not just a physical wall, but a spiritual wall. And he's made us one in Christ Jesus. So he will say in Galatians 3, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man. 
There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, this does not mean, and this verse is used, Galatians 3.28, for all kinds of things. Everything to defend why women can be pastors, because there's no difference between male and female, as to uh, why homosexual marriage is just as equal as heterosexual marriage. In the context, he's talking about in Jesus Christ, be you slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, you get the same salvation blessings. And again, that does not diminish the truth that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And we will see that when we come to the 11th chapter. Chapter 9, Israel's election. Chapter 10, their rejection. Chapter 11, their future restoration. Even when we get to heaven, God will remind us that he had a special plan for the Jewish people. I was reading this week in the Revelation about the new Jerusalem, the Father's house. When you die absent from the body, present with the Lord, you go to the new Jerusalem. Someday that glorious city that God has made will literally come out of heaven and descend on a new heaven and a new earth. And it will be the capital of the new planet that we might call heaven. And in Revelation 21 and verse 12, describing that city right now, it says it had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So even in heaven, God does not erase the fact that the Jewish people have a special place in his plan. But that does not mean that you don't have equal access to those blessings. So he says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call upon him. He's the same Lord who called Abraham out of Ur of Chaldee, who wants to be your Lord today. And so God affirms in these opening verses that the invitation to the gospel is impartial. And so we must be in our deliverance of the gospel, which brings me to the second point, and the two are connected. The scope of the gospel is universal because God is impartial towards people, because when God looks down on planet Earth, He doesn't see some people as more important or better than other people, then our message is to be universal in scope. I was speaking this week to a pastor, and he said, Pastor, I, your church has a reputation that it's very diverse, and you know, people from all kinds of backgrounds. And he said, I live in that kind of community, but we don't have that kind of diversity. Why not? I said, one of two reasons, either A, you're not preaching the grace of God or helping your people to grow in the grace of God. Because when you grow in the grace of God, you begin to see that the ground at the cross is level. That there are no distinctions in God's eyes. And number two, if they're not growing in the grace of God and deepening in their perspective of man, then the people they invite will not be what it needs to be. You see, very often people invite people just like themselves. If they're educated, they'll invite educated people. If they're rich, they'll invite rich people. If they're poor, they'll invite poor people. 
If they're uneducated, they'll invite other uneducated people. And they create this caste system where they're, maybe they're threatened by each other or they think they're better than the other. But when you begin to grow in the grace of God and you understand this truth that the scope of the gospel is universal, then you begin to break out of your little patterns and zones. And now it's important that you invite people who are like you because very often God gives you an audience with those people and that's one of the reasons He puts you there as a believer. God needs representatives and ambassadors in every segment of society. And it doesn't mean that because you're in this segment and someone is in this segment and our culture views this segment as higher than this segment, that this person is more important. God needs His people in every segment or all the different segments wouldn't be reached. But when you see the New Testament church, you see that they are not a respecter of persons, that they are not partial, but like God are impartial, and they understand that the scope of the gospel is universal. So let's think that through. Look at verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, if you're new to the Bible, you can see there's a change in typeset. That tells you it's an Old Testament quote. And if you have the New American Standard and you go out into the margin, where does it bring you to? Joel chapter 2, exactly. Brings you to Joel, the second chapter. Now, who is Joel? He's a prophet of the Old Testament. He preached about 835 years before Christ. And he said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jew and Gentile alike were included in this whoever statement concerning the Messiah who would come. And of course, since he has come, Peter can lift all the fog off of people's thinkings and says that there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But what I want you to see is that Paul is contextualizing Joel's quotation about Messiah and specifying it to Jesus Christ. It's not whoever will call upon Lord, the Lord means just God in general will be saved. Because in the context of Joel, that promise was given those who would look to God who would send the promised Savior. But now that the Savior has come, God has overlooked the times of ignorance and He's declared to all men everywhere that they be saved through Christ, whom He raised from, a de from the dead, who will judge the world. And so sometimes you will hear a preacher like myself take this verse and paraphrase it. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Is that abusing the text? No, not at all. Because in the context, Paul's applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he has just spoken of the fact that confession of Jesus as Lord, as Yahweh, results in salvation. When you believe Jesus is Yahweh and that God raised him from the dead. Now, we saw that the term Lord there in verse 9, whoever confesses Jesus Lord, it's not, well, Lord in terms of Lord of your life, though that should happen. It's Lord in terms of God, kurios. And we saw the word certainly can be used just as a term of respect like sir or most reverend sir. And sometimes it's used that way in the Bible. But most of the time in the New Testament, the word kurios, Lord, and we usually capitalize it to distinguish it from its common use, is in reference to the Lord God himself. And so in the Old Testament, if you remember, God will speak of Yahweh, of the Lord. 
And when he wants to translate that word Yahweh into Greek, because most Jews read the Greek Old Testament and not the Hebrew, and what do we say the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called? Septuagint, and it's abbreviated in your Bible, LXX in the margin, because 70 men were involved in its translation. When God wants to translate that word Yahweh, he uses the word Lord. Now, it's interesting. Paul is taking this verse from Joel chapter 2, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you go back to Joel 2, you can turn there if you want or just listen. Just listen, be easier. Some of you, by the way, have never read your preface to the New American Standard, have you? You know, take your Bible sometime, maybe this afternoon, and go to the front of the Bible and read the preface to the New American Standard. There's actually some helps there that will open up some of the truths that are found in that particular translation. Different translations do it different ways, but generally speaking, in our English Bible, when the word Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai, one of the names for God, it's capital L, small letter O, small letter R, small letter D, right? But when it's Yahweh, the covenant name for God, His most sacred name, I Am, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So when God identified Himself to Moses, He said, my name is I Am, Yahweh. And so in Joel chapter 2, whoever will call upon the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, will be saved. And Paul now takes that verse and he applies it to the Lord Jesus, affirming that Jesus is equal with the Father in holiness, in majesty, as the one true God. And so Paul says he has been given the name which is above every name, that someday everyone will confess. And what is that name? That he is Lord God. Kurios, Yahweh. And so Paul says here plainly, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a whoever. That's one of the great whoever's of the Bible. It means anybody and everybody. Why? Because God is not a respecter of persons. Now, Notice here, we've just read that he is Lord of all. I want you to hold your finger here for just a moment and turn back to the left to Acts chapter 10 for just a moment. Go to Acts chapter 10, Acts the 10th chapter. In Acts 10, if you remember, God is working in the heart of a man by the name of Cornelius or Cornelius, however you want to pronounce it. And Cornelius was a man who was unsaved according to Acts 11 when Peter meets him. He is a man who prays to God and gives alms to the Lord's work, but nonetheless, he still needs to be a, needs to be a saved person. God hears his prayer, even as an unsaved person. Sometimes Christians kind of just wholesale say, well, God doesn't hear the prayer of a lost person until he calls upon Christ for salvation. That's not true. It may sound good, but it's not true. Now, it is true that God will promise to hear the prayer of a lost man when he calls upon Jesus for salvation. And it is true that all the promises for prayer in the Bible are given to God's people. But sometimes God hears the prayer of a lost man. And one example is Cornelius. God says your, your prayers and your alms have ascended to God as a, as a sweet memorial. God was pleased, but he was still lost, still needed to be saved. Whoever will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. God's Word affirms that an inward decision will be reflected by an outward confession. 
Although salvation is the private decision of an individual, it ought to be publicly announced. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app, available in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM52, entitled Rescuing the Perishing. Perhaps you have a question you'd like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we conclude our message, Rescuing the Perishing. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.